Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuha. With Tamson and Dan read the paper. I don't know what day is it. It's like Sunday. It's Sunday, October eleventh. Actually, yeah, I think I, I can see I'm going to have to carry the ball. It's Sunday, October eleventh here at the yeah. Old Corral. Well, it's a, it, it's a big week. Yeah, how so? Our anniversary is coming up. Oh, I knew that. I know. I... <laughs> Slipped your mind. <laughs> Why yeah. am I not surprised? I'll be ready. Well, time comes. Also, I think uh, my sister and her husband, Bill, are girding themselves for their anniversary. Okay, good for them. Maybe they're both on top of that. Uh, good, good. Well, kind we of had a gloomy day. It's kind of a, a family weekend in a sense. Uh, you had some interesting family visit yesterday. Yeah, so I reconnected with uh, some cousins that I haven't seen in a zillion years. Mm-hmm. In fact... Um, my father's cousin, Gordon Granger, came down to visit. Mm-hmm. He was uh, brought uh, to our house by his son, Doug mm-hmm. Granger, and uh, it was terrific. Mm-hmm. You know, there were no big revelations. Like, we, well, didn't, we, we didn't find out that I really was listen, listen, the me, daughter of the milkman or me, something. Let me set the stage here, because yeah. uh, you're too into it. You know... Uh, you say Gordon's your father's cousin. So Gordon was a near contemporary of your dad. He's seven years younger. Your dad passed away some years ago. Uh, if he was alive today, he'd be 98. Gordon's 91. Right. So when Gordon's telling stories about things, there are things long ago. Uh, and interestingly, there are things that happened many in Cranberry, New Jersey. Uh, where, yes, where uh, we, and, we have and the kids, lived. Yeah. And, and the kids grew up. Yeah. Okay, that sets the stage. So there you go. So a lot of interesting no, stories. No, keep going. I think you're doing a great job. Thank you. Well, so, a lot of fun stories. There were stories about my father. Right. Okay. And what was fun about them is a lot of them were pretty funny. Yeah, and, yeah. I, you know, um, we, we think of my father a lot in his old age where he was kind of cantankerous. And to hear the stories about him as a young man yeah. were terrific fun. Yeah. So uh, Gordon had some great stories. And uh, Gordon's a great storyteller. We also learned more about Gordon's side of the family. Mm-hmm. Of course, Gordon Granger's named after the Civil War general. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a whole other okay. story. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is that. Right. Uh, but um, it was fun to learn that Gordon's uh, father, yeah, okay, actually was on bicycle race teams. Mm-hmm. In Ohio. In the, in the late 1800s. In the 1890s. Well, it's, yes. Okay. okay. And uh, and also was and worked for the company that uh, built the Lincoln Tunnel. Yeah. I mean, there were all kinds of great stories. Right. And the Lincoln so, Tunnel still works. So yeah. uh, that, that's impressive. And the Midtown Tunnel, all kinds of tunnels that still work. I, The stories were interesting. I will say I believe them about 70% because they were the most harrowing, harrowing Tom Sawyer Huck Finn, risking your life stories I ever heard. People falling through the ice, people uh, on the top of the water tower, all kinds of crazy things were happening to these kids. I'm not sure I buy it entirely. You know, that's why he's lasted to 91. I, he, yeah. he, he had these tough experiences growing up. <laughs> I see. You know, after you spend three hours right. hiding on the water tower. Catching and So the night animals. watchman doesn't yeah. catch yeah, you. Yeah, it's crazy stories. One you, crazy you're story. You're tough. Okay. So that that was fun. And yeah. as I said, there was nothing, uh, you know, read all these stories yeah. in the newspapers about reconnecting with your relatives 
and there is you know often some big uh, awful scandal that sets everybody on their edge we we really had a great time mm-hmm. and i hope we see a lot more of uh the other side of the Granger family. Um, anyway, so now we're... Um, so last night we went to see a movie. This is always a big We didn't go to see a movie. Well, we went to the other room. We went to the <laughs> living room. We went to the so-called dome room to see a movie, the movie room. Right. So we went. And uh, this is always a big discussion. What are we going to see? Are we going to be able to stay up late enough to see a real film, etc.? So you had... Well, we both heard uh, a reference on Sirius Radio, uh, Seth Rudetsky, the, the great... Uh, uh, spokesperson for uh, the Broadway channel on Sirius Radio, talked about a movie, apropos of nothing, called Most Valuable Players, about uh, high school performers, performers in uh, high school musicals uh, in Pennsylvania. Let me just correct you. Sure, go ahead. It was Christine Petty. Oh, really? Christine Petty said it? was talking about it. I hate to give her publicity, And he was just... He was just agreeing. The point is, yeah. I sort of suggested we might look into this, and you poo-pooed it. Because I wanted to see some sophisticated Italian comedy. But that's the two of us. You want to see high school musicals, I want to see a sophisticated classic Italian comedy. That's, again, for another day. That's okay when they're funny. The real point is that I, of course, acquiesce, because that's what I do. And we saw... Grudgingly. I do that, too. We saw Most Viable Players, which is a documentary that was done in 2010, featuring the 2008 season uh, of high school musicals in Pennsylvania and the awards season that followed, the awards being the so-called Freddies. And if this sounds strange to you, it sounded strange to us, but let me explain. Uh, the They give out awards like the Tony Awards, but they're called the Freddie Awards, uh, to high school musicals in then and these awards encompass three counties, two counties in Pennsylvania and one in New Jersey, Lehigh County in Pennsylvania, uh, Northampton County in Pennsylvania, and Warren County in New Jersey. Those are the only counties involved here, and apparently there are enough theater programs in those counties to uh, you know have a large pool of entrants because they do these great shows. Uh, and then they have this fabulous event in which they, following nominations of the leading players, they're all invited uh, to the State Center, excuse me, State Theater for the Arts in Eastern Pennsylvania, and they perform snippets of the shows in the same way they do on the Tonys, and they give the awards, and it's a fabulous event. And I thought the documentary was super. What do you think? Okay. Well, let's just say that this is the brainchild of Shelley Brown. You, yeah, sure. Okay. Who's the director of the State Theater right. in Easton, mm-hmm. which probably by now is hanging by a thread, and uh, it, but it is, is but it's still there. It, it, yeah, and, and they still do the Freddies, right? Okay. Well, uh, hopefully. Uh, no, I know they do. I checked it. Yeah. Well, we're not there yet. Okay. You know, the next one is in May of 2021. Sure. And uh, but anyway, um, she started this in 2003. Mm-hmm. Okay, and probably was you know in in part just a, another kind of idea to galvanize theater attendance. In addition, it's meant to encourage interest in the arts in high school because uh, um, the sports and academics get plenty of attention and, uh, you know, the arts are having a tough time in terms of uh, financing, etc. And what, what's impressive is the quality of the performances. Yeah. I mean, I mean so they, they, they run they run this show like yeah. a regular awards show, and it's 
broadcast on local TV yes, that's live. Right. It's yeah. a three-hour live, live show. TV broadcast. And, and the way the documentary is done, it's not just a, uh, showing the, the Freddie Awards. They cover the six months prior to the, the uh, awards, and they go to the different high schools, and they show the development of the shows to some degree. And the kids are engaging to watch. And frankly, uh, they're very, very talented. So it, it would be a tough watch if, if, if you know, if the kids couldn't put over these these musical numbers, et cetera. But they absolutely can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they seem like a great group. And then you're very excited. And you're sitting there on the edge of your seat when they announce the Freddies and to see if your favorites actually win. They don't always win. And but, they've, got, they've gotten awards for this. They've gotten Emmy Awards. Who has gotten Emmy Awards? The, the, the State Theater, the production oh, really? of these uh, well, they should. It's very television anyway, shows. Bottom line is, we recommend Most Valuable Players a uh, movie made in 2010. If you're interested in if you're interested in theater, high school theater productions, well, kids. I mean, um, I, I thought it was very good, and yeah. I was, you know, I was skeptical about this. I don't know if you realize, <laughs> but uh, I was won over. But yeah. I'm open minded. No, it w- it was uh, entertaining, and uh, you know, you got really, uh, I think, involved. In the programs, yeah. the people, the personalities, right. the theater itself. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we're ready to move to Easton. So we can go well, uh, to the state I, theater. I'll just say, just to close this, because we have to move on. Those counties and those areas, I mean, East, they're focusing on Easton and Allentown and neighboring areas. Those are not the most affluent areas in the world. Right. So it's not like... The most well-endowed theater programs, they're not, but they were still extremely Did you have impressive. them go on the Freddy's website? Uh, yeah, I did. Okay. So did you look up, did you download the um, application to be an evaluator? Oh, no, I didn't do that. Are you an yeah. evaluator now? No, no. <laughs> not yet. But you can sign up yeah. to uh, be part of the process. Really? And, yeah, there are Let's do that. official evaluators and unofficial oh, ones. Let's be official. And you have to go to X many of oh, these. Uh, we're in. Um, We're in shows, etc. Next spring. So there's that, and also you could scroll through um, the productions. Yeah, the schools that. are doing. That. Yeah, the, that that's and kind they're of all fun the usual suspects. It's uh, you know, pajama game. Every third show is the pajama game. And, no, and no, they were doing you're in town and yeah, you're uh, in town. You're right. Into the woods and carry and we saw the a musical. couple of Les Mis productions last yeah. night. Uh, yeah, uh, and the the modern production of Cinderella, the 2013. Right. <laughs> Why would you want to do that? Move on. Move on. Move on. Move on. All right. So you had an article about a woman whose name I cannot pronounce, but you're very good at it. So go ahead. Show off. Uh, (laughs) What's the name? Intimate Works, born in a crucible of a captive life. Mm. And this is uh, the um, actually a story of a um, exhibition at the National Gallery. Okay, in London, uh-huh. all right, and entitled Artemisia. It's the works of Artemisia Gentileschi. There you go. Artemisia Gentileschi. Got yes. Um, so here's my gripe with this. Yeah. This is a review. This is a review of it. Yeah. By Eleanor Narn. Yeah. Okay, and uh, she describes Artemisia. Uh, the most celebrated female artists of the 17th century, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But she kind of takes exception with the title of the show, mm-hmm. Artemisia. 
why does first name familiarity seem to be so often applied to female artists <laughs> but not males? Really? Kahlo is endlessly referred to as Frida, but only Kanye West takes the liberty of calling Uh-oh. Picasso what? just Pablo. Excuse me? Wait a second. Was Michael, Michelangelo never... a first name or a last name or what? It's his first name. Leonardo? Okay, Leonardo. His first name? It is quite typical. Really? You know, we refer to most uh, well, prominent I, I understand what she's saying. male yeah. Italian artists of this period. Because generally yeah. the name means, you know, Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah. Leonardo from Vinci. Right. Okay. Um but uh, so that just uh, All right, that move. hit me the wrong way. I'm, I'm disturbed right? by this. Let's it's go on. Not, it's not. It's a compliment. Should we move that along to that story? Artemisia. Okay. Right. Well. All right. So this uh, this looks like a, a great exhibition. All right. It'd be fun to see. Artemisia. Um, Artemisia's mother uh, died when. Uh, when Artemisia was about 12 years old, she was raised by her father, Orazio. Orazio was an artist, mm-hmm. not the nicest guy in the world, mm-hmm. okay? But uh, um, he uh, taught her how to paint, mm-hmm. okay? And she excelled. And uh, Orazio, you know, would, would brag about just how excellent she was. Now, for many, many years, a great deal of her work was actually attributed to her dad, Okay, mm-hmm. but during the 19th century, more and more got to be known about her. And as time has gone on, uh, we, you know, her body of work has grown, what we identify as being by her. Um, Orazio was a follower, if not a friend. Did he uh, actually know Orazio him? Orazio Karaz- was her father. Let's get back to Okay, Orazio. wait a minute. Yeah. Let me tell the story. Okay. Go All right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Orazio's style was what we might call Caravaggesque, okay? Caravaggio, mm, right. fan of Caravaggio. You know Caravaggio, right. all right? The uh, life models, the tenebrism, those harsh uh, contrasts mm-hmm. between dark and light, okay? That, uh, that the ignorant referred to as chiaroscuro, Probably Eleanor Narn would be in this group, but it's tenebrism, a harsh contrast, not simply the use of dark and light to create a sense of three-dimensional modeling. Anyway, her works are also known for a lot of uh, emotion and violence, and there are those who attribute that to a the um, discovery of a court trial in which she accused a fellow um, artist, a collaborator of her father's, of raping her. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we have all these records, and uh, the trial was horrific. Mm-hmm. All right, she was publicly because part of the problem is was she a virgin? Okay, apparently rape doesn't really matter unless you're a virgin. Okay, when you're raped, so she was publicly examined. Uh, gynecologically, uh, to um, uh, ascertain that. She was also um, tortured to see if she could maintain her story under torture, which would mean it was true, uh, uh, of course. Uh, So 
it's it's a long story. It's kind of an interesting story. I won't go into it, but they she does win the trial, okay? And uh, the um, Tassi, the accused rapist, is banished from Rome, but it, it never seems to be enforced. Nonetheless, she is married. She has uh, a, quite a good career. And uh, as we say, uh, you know, it seems that uh, the subject matter of many of her paintings actually in ways reflects uh, her life experience. I mean, we always like to be careful about, uh, um, you know, mixing up biography with uh, an artist's work. But here we really, people seem to think uh, we see some of this reflected, especially in her paintings of Judith beheading Holofernes. You know, it, remember Judith gets Holofernes uh, drunk um, because he's about to uh, slay her people, the Jewish people. Okay. And, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, Holofernes? Holofernes. Um, also referred to as Sardanopolis? No. No, that, no, no it's not Sardanopolis. That's, that's Ashur Banapal later. But, um, I, I'm not sure what you're talking about, honestly. Okay, I'll, we'll go over it later. Okay. okay. Anyway, um, uh, she does several versions of this, and she has this woman and her maidservant, and uh, Judith is cutting off this head, beheading uh, this man and it's she looks powerful she looks like she's working to do this and uh, th this is a very popular subject and you will see Caravaggio's version of this which is kind of hilarious mm -hmm. because his Judith mm -hmm. is very delicate and she's kind of shrinking back and she's like barely got any you know um, you look at uh, Artemisia's painting and she's like I'm gonna kill this sucker mm -hmm. all right so uh anyway she's an interesting uh painter uh with uh, an interesting history and if we could get to london we could go see this exhibition artemisia right. gentileski well, let's, let's talk about sports um baseball playoffs we got i'm not sure we have time for sports well maybe not now i think uh, we so should do more art we will in a second uh we just need a break a palate cleanser if you will um, anyway, we all got to see as a family uh, one of the uh, critical innings in uh, Major League Baseball of the last 10 years. So it's a nice thing to be able to share. We'll look back Was on I it. there? You were there and you were awake. You were awake. You seemed to follow it. And it was the Yankees and the Rays. It was uh, late in the game. It was the critical bottom of the eighth inning. And the Rays were batting in a tie game, the deciding game in the, in the playoffs. 1-1 uh, game with the Yankees' great closer, Arnoldus Chapman, uh, on the mound, and it played like a morality play, as much as anything you just described in the art. And what the reason that is is because uh, just a couple, uh, couple weeks ago, Arnaldus Chapman, who throws 100 miles per hour, had thrown a pitch that almost hit a fellow named Mike uh, Brusso, uh, a batter for the Rays, and almost hit him in the head. And it was so dangerous that Chapman was suspended and it caused an outcry in Major League Baseball. Well, this critical moment in the bottom of the eighth inning, who comes to bat against Arnaldus Chapman but one Mike Brousseau, who was a guy who scratched around in the minor leagues for some years, was only in this game because he had pinch hit and entered in the fifth inning, uh, not a superstar. Uh, what chance would he have against Chapman? And, of course, it's strike one, strike two. 
And then, uh, then Brousseau starts fouling pitches off and Chapman starts throwing balls out of the strike zone and the bat goes on and on and on for seven, eight, nine, ten pitches. And you can see him timing the pitcher. And then three and two count, he throws a ball over the middle of the plate, 100 miles an hour, and Brousseau hits it and sends it out at 105 miles an hour. And the ball goes over the fence and Tampa Bay defeats the Yankees. So, um... You don't see moments like that too much. And I have to say, everybody I ran into over the next day or two, casual acquaintances, said one thing. Did you see that eighth inning between the Yankees and the Rays last night? It was something. So, there we go. All right, gets back. let's get back to Art. Go ahead. Right. In the Historically Speaking uh, column, yeah. in the Weekend Wall Street Journal yeah. edition, uh, Amanda Foreman tells the story of the history of the comic strip. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, okay. I, I see so where you're going So in case you were this. wondering. Right. Okay. Um, you know, of course, I, I'm also taking exception to some of her history um, because she she cites the Sumerians. Of course. As the first. I remember those great Sumerian comics. As the first comics. to integrate words up. and pictures yeah, right. to tell an individual's story. Yeah. The Steely of the Vultures, created about 2450 BCE, mm. um, depicts mean. King Anatom of Lagash's crushing victory over the kingdom of Uma. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's okay. I mean, we do like that Steely mm. because there there is a scene where the vultures are carrying away body parts of the uh, defeated oh, enemy. You always okay. go for the grossest possible image. It's just yeah. funny that 3,000 years ago, that's what they were carving. I mean, uh, to be honest, yeah. that wasn't really... She, she says... Um, she calls this the... Uh, what does she call it? Um, narrative sequential art. Oh. Hmm. Um, I don't know if that particular steely is so sequential. The oldest one, as we all know, is really... Um, Superman? No, 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 no. It's uh, it's um, Egyptian. Ah. The palate, speaking of palate cleansers, of Narmar. Mm. Okay. Mm. Uh, which also has defeated enemies uh, with their heads, their heads chopped off and sitting between oh, right. their legs Please. and so on. I just noticed that they had the... Uh, so, yeah, you noticed, you brought it to my attention because you saw a detail from the Bayeur tapestry which, which we've seen which in we person. love which is not a tapestry it's an embroidery but it is fantastic it is sequential yeah. it is uh you know um narrated with words and pictures and, and where was that again that was in Bayer. Oh, right yeah. um, that, that was actually in uh, you know we went on that bike trip in uh normandy yeah and uh okay i got it okay so anyway um so we uh so anyway, that is a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, comic strip, you might call it. Um, but uh, moving right along, she does finally get to the actual um, invention of the comic strip, which she determines was uh, by a Swiss artist, Rodolf Topfer. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, his uh, publication, the... Histoire de Monsieur Vieux-Bois was published in the 1830s in Geneva, mm-hmm. okay? And uh, there was a, an English version uh, published in the U.S. in 1842, translated as The Adventures of Obadiah Oldbuck. 
Obadiah, um, you know, constantly falling in love. It's not working out. And yeah. so he becomes suicidal. And it's suicide attempt after suicide attempt. <laughs> Somehow, um, this eventually um, morphs into the first, uh, the golden age of American comic strips where Hal Foster um, adapts Tarzan into a continuous strip in 1929. Okay. All right. Uh, so here's something. But it all starts in Sumer. As we all know. Not really. Uh, so here's something. Here's a question that we've all asked ourselves, which was written in the Times in just this way. Here we go. When I stick my arm out a car window, I can feel the resistance of the air. Could I slow the car down this way eventually? How many arms would I need to break effectively this way? Haven't we all asked ourselves that question? Never. How could we, can, can Never. We, we stick our hand out the window, can we stop the car because we're creating drag? I enjoy sticking my hand out of the window. Well. Okay, because I do like that feeling. All right. The well, pressure. Can, um, but, but can you stop the car attempt? No. Uh, well, it, the, the answer not is. Not for a minute did I ever think I could do that. You are correct, it turns out. Your <laughs> instinct is correct. You, you can't do it. That when you stick your hand out, and by the way, uh, to get the maximum effect in terms of drag, you spread your fingers. And now we create a... Isn't that surprising? <laughs> we create no, a... No, no, no. It is surprising. Is because it? you would think that uh, they need to be together like a webbed foot. But you know? it still has that effect. You, I think about that when I'm swimming. Because right. we used to worry about keeping our hands or fingers together when you're swimming. You, I don't think you really need to. Okay. Okay. Let's stop the Got car it? first before we get to swimming. The point is that even when you spread your fingers out, the most you can do if the car is going 55, you might actually bring it down to 54. But so in other words, when you're doing that, you're ruining your mileage, right? You, you, from 55 to 54 is hardly ruining it, but you're diminishing it to some extent. But it doesn't have much an effect. The brakes on a typical car, by contrast, can produce a few thousand, a few thousand pounds of deceleration force. And that's the equivalent of, get this, 1,000 hands sticking out of the car. So you could stop the car, theoretically, but you'd need 1,000 hands. Or you'd need to have 500 people sitting with you, and you each are getting both your hands out of the car somehow. That's the only way to do it. So the person who's writing this, this is a, a Randall Monroe in the science section, they're he, really drilling down on this, says, look, there's another way to get at it because you can't get a thousand hands in the car. Nothing escapes this Randall Monroe. He says, here's the way you do it. If you, you could actually slow the car down with two 15-foot long hands. Two, all you need is two, but your hands would have to be 15 feet long, Right? And he says, you could do that, okay, and how do you do that? You get those giant foam hands used by sports fans. And here's where we learn that Randall Monroe is not a sports fan. Because the foam hands are not 15 feet long. <laughs> <laughs> they're uh, two feet long, maybe. Maybe they're a foot and a half. Also, they would just blow away, wouldn't they? But he has it in his head that they're 15 feet long. Okay. So uh, I think Randall would be disappointed. So in any event, I just wanted to nail How that down How big does he you. think his uh, personal anatomy is? <laughs> I don't want to know. But my point is that I just wanted to settle that for those who thought you might be stopping the car in the future just by sticking your hand out. Stick never, with the foot never break. in my life. Well, our yes. listeners are not always as, uh, as hip as you are to what's going on. Speaking of which... I know you have an article about hips, Stimson. Exactly. Yeah. And this is also in the New York Times. 
And the title of the article is With Body Fat Location Matters. Okay? Mm -hmm. Um, Waist size is an indicator of visceral fat. Fat stored around the abdomen is around the internal organs and is associated with an increased risk for heart disease, type 2 diabetes, cancer, and Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. I had heard that, actually. Okay? Yeah. And, it, yeah, uh, when uh, when I go to the cardiologist, the first thing they do is measure your waist side. Really? Waist. This, yes. Um, anyway, but they did a study with 300,000 participants. Yeah. And listen to this. Yeah. Okay? Um, a four-inch increase in a woman's hip circumference was associated with a 10% lower risk of death. Mm-hmm. All right. Also, two a two-inch, each two-inch increase in thigh circumference was associated with an 18% lower risk of all-cause mortality. So if you have fat in your hips or your thighs, it's good news. It, yes, it is not considered a contributor to heart, uh, bad heart health. Thigh size is an indicator oh, of the go. amount of muscle, which is protective. Super, it's good news. Not and the, hip fat is mm. not visceral fat, but subcutaneous fat, which is considered beneficial. All right. Okay. All right. That's, this is, I never thought anything but that, but I'm glad to have that confirmed. So, uh, you know, thighs. And Go for it. We, we Go know for some it. people with big thighs. No, I don't and, know anybody like that, but but the good news is that when I meet such a person, I'll be able to assure them their health is good. So that's yeah, good. Reminds me of that Sondheim song. What was that? Um, Miles Gloriosis. Yeah. Where the sides of his thighs. Yeah. Oh, right. That's true. The sides of his thighs. That's Zeke's line. So, um... So this was, uh, I think we heard this on the news. I heard it on the news. Stephen Barnes died. Stephen Barnes was a partner in uh, Salino and Barnes, the, uh, I'll say, well-known law firm, uh, personal injury firm. Why are they well-known? So where, where are they out of the, I read the um, obit and it said the, their jingle was very well-known. Well, right? here's the interesting thing. It's all about the jingle. I, you must know the jingle. You're telling me you don't know the jingle? No, what is the jingle? Okay, I'm mm-hmm. going to do something I rarely do. I'm going to sing a little okay, bit. Okay, sing it. All right, here it is. Hit the it. ubiquitous jingle. Salino and Barnes, injury attorneys, 800-888-8888. Huh? You got that? <laughs> you're going you're gonna to tell me they advertise on FAN. No, well, they do. They okay, do, well, but but that's this, why you might know it. This is such a ubiquitous jingle that uh, it was spoofed on Saturday Night Live, and there was an internet challenge called the Salino and Barnes Challenge. They didn't sponsor it, in which different uh, performers, even some well-known singers, would sing the jingle. It was like that's what an internet challenge is, apparently, and that is the definition. That business skyrocketed based on that jingle. That's what's amazing about this. Uh, they paid uh, a fellow $500 to write the jingle. They're a firm in upstate New York. But they spent $1.7 million to get the phone number. That's where the money goes in, 800-888-8888. That costs money. Who do you pay that to? I don't know. I don't have those details. It's an obituary, dear. But the fact is, that created a sensation 
Uh, and people would always, they called it an earworm. People would sing the jingle, sing the jingle, and, or at least remember the jingle. And they got call after call and case after case. And they became a firm of 260 attorneys based on the jingle. Well, the other part, uh, you know, obviously it's sad that Mr. Barnes passed away. He seems like uh, he's a uh, serious person uh, and, um, you know, accomplished. Uh, but also, uh, and this too was well known in the legal field, Salino and Barnes, the two individuals, were quarreling over the last five or ten years. The firm was breaking up. Mm-hmm. They didn't get along well anymore. And uh, they were getting uh, sort of a business divorce, if you will. The business was dissolving. Uh, and the details of, of the acrimony between them wasn't really well known. There was a, you know, it was a sealed record. Except here's something that interested me. Uh, however they split up the firm... No one wanted to give the other the jingle because the jingle's the whole business. So they had to keep the name Salino and Barnes. And here was the solution they came up with. They'd keep the jingle, which defined the businesses, two of them together. And that way it would work. When the calls came in, one week the calls would go to Salino. And the next week they would go to Barnes. And then go back to Salino and back to Barnes because they couldn't split up the business any other way. And you might say to yourself, well, that seems kind of unfair to the people calling in. It's kind of random who they get. But the truth is, this whole thing is random because no one knows what they're getting when they're trying to hire, hire, hire a lawyer based on a jingle. So it's kind of He died in place. a plane crash, right? Yes, he died in a private plane crash. All right, so the, I, I brought to you your attention another interesting obituary about a woman who was a uh, knitting uh, whiz, an extraordinary person, really. Yes. Um, actually, I mean, she had kind of an interesting life. Knitting wasn't uh, her whole life. Um, but uh, this is Kat Bordy, Bordy who um, unfortunately died of cancer out in Washington State. And she actually, in, I guess, about 2000, you know, um, she, wanted, she was trying to make a pair of socks, hmm. knitting. Okay, I think she she had been knitting for a while, but uh, she was frustrated by the complexity of the instructions to knit a pair of socks. And uh, I feel like I've read I've read the same book because uh, it, you know these instructions for you know do this, do that, drop this, you know, did seem uh, uh, imponderable. Okay, and she what she did was. She invented a, instead of using two knitting needles, one needle that was uh, kind of circular, Circular. right? right. And uh, she also uh, invented a process where you start knitting at the heel as opposed to the toe or the cuff. Too too tough for me to visualize. Right, right. Anyway. The real point is it worked. It was genius. It worked. Right. She self-published her instructions. She self-published her own book. And, uh, you know... Uh, made but, a good living, and it's but it's not the only it. innovation she came up with. She right. came up with a lot of other patterns that were kind of unique. Uh, but also was, her attitude, yeah. her attitude about it—that you could be uh, creative and mm-hmm. kind of let yourself go mm-hmm. uh, in the process of knitting. Anyway, she develops a great knitting career. She um, has knitting retreats, mm-hmm. and she has knitting um, sort of. Uh, field trips mm-hmm. all over the world, Peru, etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, you know, she had this well, group of people. She was even teaching middle school for a while, and she actually had the middle school uh, students knit because she felt it helped them pay attention because it's going to focus them. Well, that was early on. That was before the whole knitting craze. I mean, who would have thought but, that would have worked? Uh, yeah, 
Uh, but I think it's kind of brilliant. Yeah. Um, just uh, the idea. She says it helped them focus on their lessons mm-hmm. when busying their hands with methodical and meditative process of knitting. No, no, that, but that, no one, that hasn't caught on, but it makes some sense, I guess. I think, I, I, I think it does. Um, anyway, she's pretty interesting, but she did, I mean, she really did struggle. She had breast cancer twice mm-hmm. and endometrial cancer as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she... She was unique uh, in how she approached cancer. She chose to view the cancer in her body as a friend she was on a journey with. Um, but I think what you really take away from this was uh, her ability to um, kind of uh, teach uh, this sense of creative flow mm-hmm. in the process of knitting and uh, she used knitting as a way to let go. Yeah, as a metaphor for other other things, that's her own life philosophy. So I thought it was kind of fascinating. All right, so there's also, we both also focused on an article about ailing forests, which is about arborists uh, who are apparently in demand these days. Yeah, I mean, how cool is that? Because... Our friends, uh, the Walshes. Is Kyle an arborist? Yeah. Knows? Well, I don't know if he's an arborist, but he went back to uh, graduate school to get is. a degree in forestry. I think he is okay. an arborist. They mentioned so, a certain and he type. Works, he urban works for arborist. the um, yeah. city of New York, right? Um, so uh, go Kyle. Uh, how brilliant was that? I mean, here we have our kids who are just futzing around with this old-fashioned computer stuff, yeah. and really the demand is going to be in the For world Robert. of trees. Yeah. And uh, that seems very clear. But anyway, the stories about the what the Arbor is seeing here are, are pretty fascinating, and uh, um, people are acknowledging um, that uh, the... Our forests are failing fast. The rate of decline um, is surprising everybody. And uh, so um, what else do you want to say about this? Well, I mean, there are a lot of interesting observations, these folks. I mean, the arborists themselves uh, observe apparently quite a few things that you wouldn't on your own. So much so that when they walk through a forest, they can spot decay that you would never spot. And they well, say of that course. Most, they're professionals. Most people don't spot decay until the tree is dead. Is We're not saying. professionals. I understand. Okay. But so they see things happening and say, well, this is going south, that's going south. They, they, and for all kinds of reasons, not one or two obvious reasons. It could be pests, it could be climate, it could be a million different things. Uh, and, but here's and, an interesting thing. Yeah. They have several pictures of wasp larvae. Yeah. Because apparently wasp larvae can uh, feed on the emerald ash borer. Mm-hmm. So our our area of uh, Pennsylvania here, ashes are dropping like flies. Mm. Okay. And it's oh, a serious yeah, well, problem. Right. You know, you and, yourself you... have spent thousands of dollars oh. taking down dead uh, ash trees. Yes. yes. Oh. And, uh, all, you know... Ash trees are dying all along these different hiking paths. But is it because paths. of the wasps? Larvae? The borer. No. The wasps can help save the trees. Oh, really? Because they feed on the borer. Oh. Good news. We have a tremendous amount, amount of wasps, wasps yes. around our house <laughs> right. lately. Right. And I, I've been going crazy trying to kill them. Well, trying to kill them huge mistake. I'm, I've wised up now. Okay? That's we will right. just move out of the house, <laughs> let the wasp take over, yeah. and uh, our trees will be safe. Yeah, we'll no right. house, but we'll have. Anyway, it. it was a pretty Good interesting course. story. These 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 arborists are 
kind of in demand. Uh, so if you're thinking of a new career, a laconic well, that's an group. idea. Okay, maybe maybe we could do uh, that. We could do that. We can we get a degree? I, we can't go back. I think so you're the one with the two. Here's of what us. they say. I love this line. Yeah. If trees provided Wi-Fi, we would be planting them everywhere. Bear Levangi says, but they only give us the air we breathe. That is a good Ooh. line. That's a good line. Ooh. I, I get right. it. I, I so, see what she's getting at. But but they're recommending planting a bigger variety of yes. variety right, of because trees. Because you're not putting all your money on one uh, right. One tree. So there's that. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, uh, graduates specializing in ar- arboriculture um, have so many jobs waiting for them. They get to pick and choose. Right. One expert says, I'd like to say they have a 150% job But you know what's funny about that? Rate. You get the feeling reading the article, they have a lot of jobs open to them, and none of them pay very much. So that's a little bit weird. But you can live in places if you have these jobs. I mean, yeah. Kyle lives in Brooklyn, okay? Well, yeah, that may But I work. think there are a lot of, there's a lot of demand for arborists in locales which have yeah. a much lower cost right. of I living. Agree. I agree. All right. Well, that sort of leads into the final article, which is actually taking a walk in the woods or something like it, right? Yeah. The walk that was wassum. Awesome. Awesome. Wassum. A discussion of cultivating awe. Mm-hmm. Okay. A somewhat nebulous emotion, awe is generally defined as the sense that you are in the presence of something larger and more consequential than yourself and that this is something mysterious and ineffable. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, a study was done, you know, there's already a lot of evidence that exercise, including walking, blah, 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 can buoy our moods. Past studies have linked increased physical activity to greater happiness and reduce risks for anxiety, depression, and other mental ills. Uh, but the question is, for some reason, they're curious about um, if you take a walk and look for awe, you know, look for experiences, mm-hmm. try to recognize uh, an awe experience, yeah. a moment of beauty, a moment of uh, just uh, exquisite nature or whatever, um, that uh, that may make you feel even better, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they asked a couple of different groups. Uh, one were uh, to start walking at least once a week for 15 minutes, uh, preferably outside. That's the c- control group. The other group were asked to walk once a week, but were instructed to cultivate awe as they walked. Basically, we told them to go and walk somewhere new, to the extent possible, and look at everything with fresh, childlike eyes. Awe is partly about focusing on the world outside of your head. And uh, it seems they were successful. Oh, okay. Okay, but here's, here's one of the things they didn't expect to happen, all right? They asked the people... Uh, to take a selfie, basically to prove they were outside right. and, and doing the walk. And they noticed that the awe walkers, yeah. okay, there's, as, as time went on in this study, the, the size of the awe walker in the selfie picture diminished, mm-hmm. and it was more about their surroundings, oh, uh, whereas it did not change at all mm-hmm. um, for the control group. And uh, they found the control group 
uh, tended to be more focused on not what was around them, just all the problems that, that they were experiencing. It is such a simple thing to look around for small wonders while you exercise, and there's no downside. All right. Well, excellent. Well, that's a good ending. Uh, that's all we have this week. Uh, and uh, for Tam Today and Read the Paper, this is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamson Granger, I'm going to go you know, back to the TV room and watch more baseball. Football. Football? Football, football now. Baseball later. Okay. So t- just follow my lead. Uh, I'll handle that. All right. All right. You're in charge. Okay. Uh, We'll see you next week. Bye.